Welcome to Stone Club Walks and Talks. This is the first episode of our new podcast series, and I'm your host, Matthew Shaw, co-founder of Stone Club with Lally Macbeth. Stone Club is a place for people to congregate, to muse, and most importantly, to stomp to stones. We believe the journey is as important as the destination, so come on a walk with us. We have two guests in this first episode, the artist Tian Roberts, who we caught up with on a walk on St Mary's, one of the Isles of Scilly, and also the peace activist and campaigner, author, the list goes on, Satish Kumar. Um, it was a real honour to chat to him about his journey, uh, some epic walks and so much more. And we'll begin by joining Tian, so let's venture together to St Mary's. Here we are on St. Mary's. Um, We've just visited the first stop on our walking tour. I'm here with Lally Macbeth and our guest today is Tian Roberts, resident of the island currently and um, uh, Salonian expert in all things stony. (laughs) Where where have we just been, Tian? Uh, We've just been to Bamps Khan Burial Chamber, which is a really well-preserved burial chamber, a Salonian chambered tomb on St. Mary's. It has a stunning view out over Tresco and Samson and Briar. It's a little bit misty today, but it kind of adds to the, what did you call it, lioness? Uh, oh, the Atlantean. Atlantean feeling. Yes. Yeah, of the, of the experience. Um, it's a Bronze Age tomb. And it was a kind of communal burial site with uh, maybe other... Um, kind of uses too, like ceremonial uses, uh, it's unsure. But below that is a ancient village, a bit like Carnuni or um, Chiswaster kind of feeling, um, which was quite, it wasn't contemporary with the tomb above. It was uh, much later, but they didn't take any of the stones from the chamber tomb to make the village. So uh, either it was still in use then, or it was, um, very respected and revered because it wasn't tampered with at all for the building of the village. And the village is amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Yeah. We find quite a lot of new homes. Yeah. And really well preserved there. Mm. There's the curb entrance, and then the passage tomb is all is all intact. Yeah, Looks amazing. As well. Yeah, and the hearths in the village. Mm. I, mean, I could happily live there. Yeah, yeah. it's quite civilized, wasn't it? Extremely. The, uh, the plaque says that it Hello. Hi. <laughs> and so, um, this this coastal path we're taking now. Yeah. So, which which way are we on the island? Are we on the south of the islands here? Do you know which? I think we're on the north. Side the north there, side yeah. of the island. Yeah, we're north. We're heading east. Yeah. We're going um, along towards Bar Point now. Yeah. We're going through um, the pines. We call this. I don't know uh, if there's like a official name for it but we just call it the pines and it's a kind of little kind of forest of monterey pine trees which are very old um not natives the islands like originally but i think they were introduced like a long time ago along with when the 
um, when the gardens were planted on Trisco, you know, yeah, trees then, yeah, um, which is good because it's very windy up here. Not today, but it's good to have a bit of tree cover. Um, and soon we will reach a very beautiful beach, very white sand, which uh, is the site of a old causeway that was um, a kind of link between. St Mary's and Tresco and St Martin's in the, well, a long time ago before the islands were flooded. Because um, they used to be, it used to just be two islands. Yeah. One called Enor, uh, which is this one we're on now. And one, I can't remember the original name of it, but it's now St Agnes and Gue. So those two were always separate, um, just a few miles apart. But then there was a big inundation of water at some point and the field systems in between were flooded. I think it was gradual, but like not that gradual. Yeah. Um, and that formed the kind of five islands, well, the four islands that we now have that were once Enor, which is St. Mary's, Tresco, St. Martin's and Briar. And then St. Agnes and Gue are still separate over there. But yeah, this, uh, this bit here used to um, have a kind of causeway across. And there are still some rocks in the middle called like pavement rock and things like that. And bits where the sand washes away um, and you reveal like glimpses of um, old kind of cobbled streets and things, allegedly. Um, and then there are some rocks in between that are have Cornish names for like settlements and things. So they think that they were once similar to um, the little ancient village we were just at, the Bronze Age village, like some things between. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and there are some places like over on Samson where if you're if you're going through on your boat at low tide, you've got to be really careful that you don't hit the old field boundaries. Yeah. Because you can, <laughs> they're just kind of sticking up like old old walls and things, and you can yeah. mess up your outboard on them if you're not. not my granddad tells me many horror stories about that kind of thing happening. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, let's uh, continue along. <laughs> We'll catch up and continue our walk with Tian very shortly, uh, but first of all, let's venture to Heartland in Devon and let's have a listen to the conversation I had with Satish Kumar. Satish, um, it's a real pleasure to chat with you this morning, and um, I thought I'd start with Dartmoor. Two of your, well, at least two of your great loves, one of which was Dartmoor itself and walking. Uh, the other one was reflecting on a life of walking and also a life of activism and campaigning um, but one that's been done so in such a beautiful and dedicated and gentle way um, so I thought perhaps we could start with walking because um, famously you did this peace walk uh, when you were a, a, young, a slightly younger man. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, Dartmoor is my love and I think Dart or Dartmoor is uh, one of the few really beautiful wild places still left. And we should protect it, we should cherish it, we should love it, and we should not spoil it. Because there are not many wild places left in Britain. So 
Uh, and Dartmoor has a kind of soul. It's a kind of spirit. When I'm on the Dartmoor, I feel uplifted. I feel kind of energized. I feel uh, transcended um, somehow. So Dartmoor has a great effect on me. And this is why it was my pleasure to make a film about Dartmoor and call myself an earth pilgrim. So it was a pilgrimage to Dartmoor, in Dartmoor, around Dartmoor, and so on. But that walk on Dartmoor was a kind of culmination of my walk uh, from India to America. And uh, that was 8,000 miles walk through 15 different countries. And I did that 8,000 mile walk without a single penny in my pocket because the, the, the walk was for peace. And I was inspired by Burton Russell. Burton Russell at age 90 was protesting against the nuclear bomb. And he said that until government bans the bomb, I'm not going to move away from the White Hall. So he was arrested and was put in jail. And I was 26 years old, young man, reading this news in India, sitting in a cafe, waiting for coffee. And when I read this, my goose pimple went up. And I said, wow, he's a man of 90 going to jail for peace in the world. What am I doing, young man, sitting here drinking coffee? So I was with a young friend. And so we started to talk. And in the end, after long, long discussion and consideration, my friend and I decided to walk from India from the grave of Mahatma Gandhi to four nuclear capitals of the world, Moscow, Paris, London, Washington, D.C. And that journey really made me kind of who I am. Uh, that was a kind of a formative journey mm -hmm. going through Muslim countries, Christian countries, communist countries, capitalist countries, rich countries, poor countries, mountains, deserts, snow, forest, everything you can imagine, and doing without money. Because I felt that the wars begin in fear and, uh, and peace begins in trust. So if I was protesting against the war and the bomb and for peace, then I have to be peace. I have to demonstrate peace and, and not demonstrate for peace, but demonstrate peace. So how do you show that I am peace and a peaceful person and I practice peace, I have to show trust. And how do you show trust? If you have money in your pocket, you buy your food, you go and stay in a bed and breakfast or a hotel or a guest house, you buy your clothes, you buy your shoes, you, everything is bought. You don't need anybody. But when you have no money, you have to depend on the strangers to give you food, to give you shelter, to give you clothes, to give you shoes. And for two and a half years, I didn't touch money. I depended totally on the hospitality of the strangers. So that was a big experience for me to live in trust and not knowing in the morning whether I will get a food in the evening, not knowing in the morning where I'll have bed at night. And that kind of uncertainty and living in that uncertainty and still trusting that something will happen and trust, trust worked out. Although there were some difficulties, 
There were some hardships and there were some days when I went hungry, some days when I slept outdoor, all those things happened, but they were all worth it. And I feel stronger and much more trusting the world and much more trusting humanity and not always doubts and, and, and a kind of fear. So that was the experience of my walk. Long answer. <laughs> well, what uh, an incredibly long walk and, uh, and and comparatively very short answer for all of those places. <laughs> yeah. I, I think what you must have seen, you know, I can only imagine the changes in landscape, the changes in cultures, the changes in wealth, as, as you described, the changes in the people that you met. I, I was wondering then about how you how that experience changed your view of the world because you were coming from Ra Rajasthan or, or born in Rajasthan and coming from a background of being a Jain and so there was this an animistic uh, worldview and this peaceful worldview as, as part of a spiritual practice. But did that develop and did that evolve as you um, encountered different people and cultures and landscapes? Do you think? Yes, it evolved. It evolved. Um, the thing is that I met all the religious people because I came from a Jain background. And in Jain background, the most important principle, first and foremost principle, is do no harm. Do no harm to yourself. Do no harm to other people. And do no harm to nature. And so that principle of doing no harm, non-violence, ahimsa, that was the kind of foundation on which um, uh, I built my walk. And I think the reason that I was able to make this decision and take this decision that I'll walk and I'll walk without money was because of my training as a monk for nine years. But I had walked for nine years uh, without money because for nine years I had no money. I had a begging bowl. At bare feet, um, and depending on the generosity and and a kind of hospitality of strangers, and so Jain principle were a kind of training ground for me. A monkhood was a training ground for me. But what I learned during my walk was I met the Muslims, I met the Sikhs, I met the Christians, I met the Jews, I met all kinds of uh, religious people. And what I found is that at the bottom of it. The real religion is a religion of love. Mm, yeah. All the names and labels are just a kind of shorthand. Because if you are born in uh, Europe, you are more likely to be uh, a Christian. If you are born in Middle East, like Iran or, or Arab, Saudi Arabia, you are more likely to be uh, a Muslim. If you are born in Israel, you are more likely to be a Jew. So all these religions are just a kind of labels, names, uh, like we call a country, India or China or Russia, we call a particular tradition uh, or religious tradition with a particular name. But at the bottom of it, I discovered when I met the really practicing Muslims and practicing Christians and practicing Jews and practicing Buddhists, their religion was religion of love and, and, and respecting each other, doing no harm to each other and, and, uh, and allowing different points of views and respecting those different points of views and not being dogmatic and not being like if you read the, the poetry of Rumi and the poetry of Hafiz, and the poetry of uh, William Blake. I mean, there is no uh, difference between Tagore and William Blake. There is no difference between a Hindu a poet and a Muslim poet. So the essence, 
our true religion is a religion of love and that's what i discovered by walking around the world mm, wonderful and um having having done this walk and and having developed um all of those different experiences making you who you are and changing you you met some fantastic people along the way i know as well um people that are, you know are um really celebrated in history now as well you know the world leaders um but but not just world leaders real thought leaders uh, people that were really changing the world and being very radical for for what they wanted with equality and and activism as well that that must have been incredible as well to have met some of the people absolutely, along absolutely absolutely i met some famous people but some people i met who were very, as inspiring as famous people of course it was a great to meet martin russell himself because he was the inspiration and so when i met martin russell he was so warm and so friendly and he was pouring tea himself uh, even at age 92 <laughs> and and we discussed about the idea that what is peace and uh, for martin russell to some extent the absence of war and the absence of nuclear weapons and absence of uh, kind of arms race was um, was peace but i said to to martin russell that the real peace is absence of fear not only absence of war and absence of weapons but absence of fear and as long as we have fear in our heart we cannot have peace and that was a very very interesting good discussion and uh, butterlesser said uh, that um, you have walked all the way from india to england mostly land and therefore you could walk but you can't go over the atlantic can i give you some money and i said to uh, lord russell that we cannot take money we have not touched money for 2 years but if you will give us two tickets uh, in a boat we will be delighted and will be grateful and he helped to arrange two tickets for us uh, in the queen mary and we sailed across the atlantic and then when we arrived in america we were delighted uh, after hearing the the i have a dream speech of martin luther king uh, we wrote to him and we were delighted to see him he was truly an embodiment of peace he was truly an embodiment of love he was put in jail for 29 times in his career as a as a kind of uh, peace activist and and yet never a shred of revenge in his heart never a single word of anger in his mouth that was amazing i've never met somebody as an embodiment of love and peace and generosity and kindness and and a forgiveness that was something very inspiring but apart from these famous people that i had privilege and honor of meeting what i remember even more is the ordinary people writers painters musicians uh, john byers for example and many others uh, who i met and this inspired me that there are so many activists at the grassroots level who are is contributing um, the good uh, sort of ideas and and a, and a message of peace through music through singing through painting through gardening through doing simple or, or ordinary things and yet they were contributing like J john lennon's song imagine it's a great contribution to uh, peace and 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 love 
uh, and and uh, the, we shall overcome was a great song whoever wrote it was a i think there's are the symbol of activism activism is not only protesting in trafalgar square activism can come in many many different forms and <laughs> so for me that was a great discovery absolutely um i think one of the greatest things about your work for me is those um those those multiple ways in which people can have a voice and contribute um everybody's included um you everybody know. included and matthew you are uh, the similar sort of ex good example that to your poetry you are inspiring and and and, and encouraging and and helping many people to come out and i think poetry can be a very great way of bringing new consciousness and therefore i always um, remember uh, kind of william blake and and um, and 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 the roof Su sufi poets like rumi and hafiz and tagore and and walt whitman and and uh, gary snyder and wendell berry and so many other poets i think they are great activists of our time and you are one of them well <laughs> thank you i i think uh, i think a lot of the work you've done over the years with resurgence magazine uh really symbolizes this as well because this is a magazine that you were the editor of for more than 30 years uh, i'm right 34 years 35 years and something yes like yes absolutely i was um in england for a visit and i met E.F. Schumacher. Yeah. And he was an associate editor of Resurgence magazine. And he said to me, the Satish, we are looking for a, a full-time editor and you are the kind of person I'm looking for. And would you be uh, the editor of Resurgence? And I said, uh, Mr. Schumacher, I'm not in England. I live in India and I'm here only for a short visit. And I'm going back to India. So Shubhakar said, but Satish, why are you going back to India? We give you this lovely job of being an editor of a very good magazine. So I said, yes, but I want to go back to India to work with the Gandhians because I'm a Gandhian and I want to work with the Gandhian movement. So Shubhakar said, Satish, there are many Gandhians in India. We need one in England. Yeah. And stay here and edit the magazine and make it a Gandhian magazine. Because Gandhian ideas are ideas of elegant simplicity, of non-violence, of peace, of ecological sustainability, of regenerative agriculture. All these Gandhian values are needed in our time. So that's how I was kind of persuaded to stay in England. And as you say, I, I edited the magazine for nearly four decades. And... I think this is the one magazine which has survived for the last 57 years. The magazine was established in 1966. And this is a kind of holistic magazine. It's a global community of people who are thinking in a holistic way, interconnected way. We are all interrelated. Resurgence represents the values of holistic thinking. Resurgence says that humans and nature are not separate. We are nature. Humans are as much nature as mountains and forests and rivers and animals and birds. And secondly, resurgence says that humans are not above nature. You are not superior to nature. 
we are integral part of nature and therefore all nature human na humans and animals and forests and rivers and uh, uh, oceans and mountains they all have intrinsic value and like we have we believe in human rights we also need to believe in rights of nature so this is a kind of message a holistic message where nature is not simply a means to an end the end of economic growth uh, and even humans are not simply a means to an end the end of economic growth because uh, our modern society the industrial society the consumer society looks at nature only as a resource for the economy and looks at the humans only as a resource for the economy we call it hr hr in various uh, um, kind of businesses stand for human resources yeah i say and resurgence says the humans are not a resource for economic growth and profit and and production and consumption human dignity is above all these kind of uh, production consumption economics economic growth and so on so giving back the dignity to humans and bringing back the integrity to nature that is the message of resurgence and, and 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 it has been my privilege and honor to be the editor of this very groundbreaking and and like a holistic um, magazine which promotes the values of interconnectedness and interdependence and and a, and, a, and a diversity at every level biodiversity cultural diversity religious diversity uh, economic and political and philosophical diversity and even truth diversity so when if we can celebrate our diversity and not turn diversity into division and conflict and war that is the message of resurgence and seeing through the diversity we see unity of life we are all interconnected we are all interdependent we are all interbeings and the diversity and unity dance together that is the message of resurgence and 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 it had been my privilege to edit the magazine well and I, and I love the way that the magazine itself has even managed to do that with other publications over the years with with undercurrents um you know of which i have some very old uh, copies of um in the house as well as um the ecologist more recently and and the way in which it doesn't stand alone and it, it's not a competitive um um, magazine in that way if something's in trouble or it's going to be lost resurgence has found ways of bringing everything under this one umbrella bringing in different writers and, and that's such a wonderful thing yeah absolutely and also in resurgence we value as you say undercurrents and ecologists and other uh, we have all worked together as a kind of family uh, of uh, ecologically minded holistically minded uh, writers poets artists and in resurgence we cover poetry and we cover art we have an art section and book reviews and so and also uh, what we try to do in resurgence is to bring a little bit of joy our movement should not be a, a movement of anger and anxiety lots of people are very angry and very anxious and and very kind of frustrated and and uh, and we say that we don't want our movement to be a movement of misery we want people to enjoy being part of the movement we want a movement of happiness and it should be pleasure and joy and fun to protest to protect to build to be organic to be ecological to bring renewable energy all these should be fun so so this is what we want because at the moment our media is so miserable 
if you read the the telegraph the te- times the mail the mirror the guardian all these papers are all miserable miserable times miserable mail miserable mirror miserable guardian miserable bbc and 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 um, lots of our ecological oriented movement is very miserable they are always complaining 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 so resurgence brings a, a message of joy change transformation uh, ecological renewal organic farming organic gardening renewable energy um, and living a good life elegant and simple life should be fun and joy and and we should do our best to create a new world order should be fun and not a pressure not a burden not a misery uh, or that kind of thing so i want and resurgence wants our ecology movement green movement environmental movement to be fun and joy and not a miserable uh, kind of protest yeah here here you know we definitely we definitely need the joy don't we and it's bringing it too so yeah. thank you for that i i was reminded recently i was reading a book uh, by richard king called brittle with relics it's a a history of wales uh, a history of the sort of industrial and post industrial wales and I got to about 5 or 6 chapters in and all of a sudden I landed in Pembrokeshire and there's a chapter about Pembrokeshire and John Seymour and Usatish and building a community there so before you before you came to live in Devon you were you were based in in Pembrokeshire and did you is that where you began with the resurgence magazine as well in Wales No no uh, we began resurgence uh, in London yeah my wife June and I jointly edited resurgence from kentish town in london and from 1973 to 76 uh, we were there but then we felt that we have to practice what we are writing about we are mm. writing about ecology we are writing about sustainability we are writing about self sufficiency we are about organic farming renewable energy but we don't practice in london we live in a kind of very urban and suburban life and so we should practice and be the change that we want to see in the world and so we wanted to move out of london and go in pembrokeshire and be on the land in the neighborhood of john seymour and and a garden and a cook and make a cheese and make butter and and a live a simple life so uh, how you can have a joyful simple elegant life uh, uh, and and uh, reduce our footprint on the planet earth reduce our uh, um, kind of carbon emission on planet earth and reduce our negative impact so how to live simply elegantly ecologically and joyfully that was the experiment so then we went to pembrokeshire uh, but we were not we did not have a, a, a proper uh, firm base there so we were there for uh, 70 um, 7 78 79 and then we got a very good offer from dartington hall trust that if you come to devon they will support us and support the resurgence magazine and 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 so we managed to find a more permanent base in devon so we moved from pembrokeshire to devon but pembrokeshire was a very good experience for us and we had a wonderful time with center for alternative technology and we had a wonderful time with patrick holden and 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 his organic farm and john seymour and his self sufficiency movement and a lots of um, at that time when the center for alternative technology was promoting renewable energy through windmills 
and solar panels, everybody thought that they were kind of idealistic fools. Never renewable energy can meet the needs of British energy and British industry and British households. But at that time, nobody knew and thought that renewable energy can be a real, um, a real source of energy. But now in Britain, Nearly 35% of energy is coming from the renewable sources. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idealistic uh, uh, the fools, you, you were called at that time, had a point. And we made the point and Center for Alternative Technology and the movement for renewable energy is now thriving. So that was the kind of experience in Pembrokeshire for us. Yeah, it was incredible to read about um, Center of Alternative Technology and all of these things coalescing and blooming and, and beginning. And I think, you know, the other thing that I always think about when I think about you, Satish, is education and more than education learning and your approach to that, because I, I think it's very refreshing. It's continually refreshing um, to, uh, to think about education through your eyes, because not only have you talked a great deal about learning and experience and all of the things that bring learning to life uh, but you've you've done it as well the small school um the resurgence trust and everything that it does with the courses but of course schumacher college and you know and all of those things when i was reading about center of alternative technology and john seymour's books and those influences this is a lifetime of education being at the heart of your work it's, it's a peaceful way of approaching it but your approach to education, some people might say, is is an alternative approach to the mainstream. But I, I see it as one that, just like you were talking about alternative technology, it's the only way um, really to progress. So I just love to to you know to, to end the conversation for the last few minutes on on your approach to education and why this is such an important part. <coughs> of your work. Uh, yes, Matthew, um, uh, I started small school and Schumacher College, and particularly Schumacher College in 1991 and the first teacher we had um, was James Lovelock teaching Gaia hypothesis. The reason I started Schumacher College was that most of our universities, when they get young people there, they look at them and they think that young people have no body, they have no heart, they have no hands, they have no legs, they have only brain. And only half a brain, because we have two hemispheres in our brain. The left hemisphere is the hemisphere of more rational and more scientific, more mathematical, uh, more analytical, more administrative, more managerial. The right hemisphere of the brain is more intuitive, more relational, more spiritual, more creative, more imaginative, more poetic, and more artistic. So our universities mainly don't touch the right brain, only educate the left brain, and nothing to do with hands, and nothing to do with heart, no teaching of any compassion, kindness, generosity, relationship, respect, um, love, all these values, heart values, courage, courage is a heart value. Core means heart. So courage is a heart, a resilient and strong heart. So our educational system lacks the education of uh, heart, education of hands, education of body, education of feelings. And therefore, Schumacher College, we started. And we said that our education is, should be nature-based. Nature is our teacher. Nature is, we don't learn about nature. We learn from nature. And the nature is our source of, uh, of 
of uh, learning. And so uh, we are community. So Shubhakar is a community where our students garden together, cook together, go on Dartmoor together, learn from plant trees together, learn from nature. And so nature-based, earth-based, earth-centered, nature-centered education of head, education of heart, education of hands in a community atmosphere, cooking together, gardening together, all those things we brought together as an example. Because our university graduates, from Oxford, from Cambridge, from Harvard, from Yale, from big, big universities of Beijing, Mumbai, um, Tokyo. All these people are responsible for the biggest problems of our time. The climate change and all the industry which produce uh, carbon emission is run by highly educated graduates of Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard and Yale and big, big universities of the world. So education is a part of the problem of our time. And therefore, we need a new kind of education where we are educating young people, not just for the jobs and for the ego, ego-centered education, but we want to educate eco-centered education. From ego to eco, we are saying that we are only making a small change. We are changing G to C, but that's a big change. And so ego-centered education is me, 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 my success, my uh, name, my fame, my prestige, my power, my money, my house, my car, me, 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 my success. Eco-centered education is how we relate to each other, how we relate to the earth, how we relate to our forest, how we relate to our animals, how we relate to all the other humans. We are a community, we are a society and we have a value and we have a mutuality and we have a reciprocity. We support each other, not me, 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 everybody being selfish and for their own um, uh, success. Our success together, mutuality, reciprocity um, and, and a kind of sharing ideas, celebrating diversity, celebrating unity. That is the core of Schumach College education. Oh, thank you, Satish. And, um, and thank you for your time and thank you for everything uh, that you're doing. It's a wonderful thing. It's my pleasure to speak with you, Matthew. And now we continue, so let's rejoin Tian on St. Mary's. We're just reaching uh, the pathway down now to the next site. There's a very beautiful signpost, um, well preserved, pointing the way. So we're on the approach, Tian. This is uh, Inesidgen burial chamber. There's actually two. So the first one we're going to go to is the less well-preserved one, which is Lower Inesidgen burial chamber. Um, and then there's one up on the hill, which is the higher one, which is a little bit better condition. And it's like very kind of spooky and eerie, the one up there. It feels very um, like a portal to the dead. It's, yeah. Yeah, it is really got a, a different vibe from Bamps Khan where we were just at, which is a bit more kind of bigger and feels more like a community site. Whereas, yeah, this one, well, we'll see what you think, if you mm -hmm. agree with me, but it yeah. just feels really deathy there. <laughs> um, and it starts to feel a bit more remote as well, the paths. We're now on the grass path. It's sort of become slightly less managed, yeah. although still very good, but um, but it has a different feeling. We feel like we're more within nature down at this site. Yeah. Uh, 
the sea is out just right here on our left. This is the first one, and actually, I think the entrance is right on the other side, which is unusual as you think it would be facing the sea, but it's actually up here. So, is that so that the sun can enter the, the, the barrow um, or the, the passage tomb here? Is it? Is it sort of. They are all usually aligned that way. Yeah. I'm not sure what this one's like alignment yeah. is, but it's usually like winter solstice sunrise or summer solstice, like or equinox sunset or something. They usually are aligned like that, but I don't know which is which. And these are all contemporary with each other? These these sites or thereabouts, do you think? Yeah, I think so. They're all early Bronze Age. Yeah. I mean, there's rarely a view like this. The islands are in the mist on the horizon. Um, has a very mystical feeling today with the, the way in which the light, the light reflects. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, you can see the sort of shapes of the Eastern Islands out on our right where that's Great Ganilly where you saw all the seals yesterday and uh, there's kind of one sort of half hidden in the mist over there which has got kind of three peaks mm -hmm. which is Nornor which is the site of the Romano-British goddess cult where we saw the kind of goddess figurines and things and the brooches, Roman brooches that were in the um, museum earlier and that one was like a, a shrine where seafarers would go and pay homage to uh, the goddess well it's so it's thought and would leave offerings so they found thousands of brooches lots of coins and some venus figurines all from the roman period there because back then like the city now feels like super remote but back then it was like a real center for commerce and trade because of the tin industry in cornwall and the kind of like massive trade routes that went there like this was quite a an important point for trading so it was sort of a now it feels very remote but then it was very much like connected to the to the world and to trading particularly when the rest of the land was a lot more forested it was really much easier and quicker to get about by boat so so yeah it was a big center for trade then and it's thought that this uh, little goddess shrine was um, where people would go and and hope for like a good seafaring voyage and like good weather and things you go and ask the goddess to grant you that yeah so we have a nice view of that from this burial chamber so you were born on the Scilly Isles? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I was just, I came here when I was two weeks old. My mum had to go away to have me because of the medicalness, but I'm pretty much from, yeah, born yeah. and raised, we call, we'd say. Born and raised on the Scilly. <laughs> and a uh, hospital's a good thing, and medical supervision, so. <laughs> yeah, um, and when did you first become aware of the prehistoric sites of the Scillies? Is it just something that's always been there in your consciousness? Yeah, always. I remember like my first kind of standing stone love was the Old Man of Gyu, which is, um, I was extremely lucky in that when I was little, uh, my mum and I would live on Gyu during the winters to look after the person who owned the houses there's cats, because uh, they would go back to Kent in the, in the winter. So I got to live on this incredibly remote, like even for the city standards, little tiny island with only two houses on it. And on the back of the island was this very, like very like majestic, very beautiful 
big standing stone called the Old Man of Gyu. And we just refer to it as the Old Man. And it was always kind of this sort of character in, um, yeah, in like life growing up. Uh, so that was kind of the first one I remember. It's like my first love in terms of stones. And then on St. Mary's, Bramps Khan Burial Chamber in Ancient Village, which is sort of something we would come and, come and have a picnic at. Uh, and we would always go out in my granddad's boat, and he would take us up to the uninhabited islands where you can see um, boat-shaped chamber tombs and old, old chapels and all sorts of things. So it was very much part of the landscape for me as was kind of myth and all the myths that are associated with all of these uh, places. So yeah, that was kind of just as real as, um, as anything else, really. So I was really lucky in that regard. And your art places you firmly in the landscape always. Yes. Do you think that comes from these formative experiences? Yeah, I think so. I always feel very held by, um, I feel very held by the islands. Uh, like a kind of womb or a mother or something. feels really uh, integral, feel very rooted. I feel very, like, uh, filled up uh, like energetically when I'm here. Like, if I've been depleted for a while and I come back, I'm like, oh, yeah. I remember that feeling of the place that holds you. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Stone Club Walks and Talks. You can find us in all the usual places, Instagram, Twitter, and of course our website, stoneclub.rocks. And don't forget to like and share the podcast. We'll be back soon with another walk and another talk. Goodbye. Goodbye.